All right, we're starting this new, uh, new series called Being. Uh, this looks like it could be like a, I don't know, mystery novel or something cover, right? Like being, you know, so, I don't know, sci-fi movie or something like that. But uh, this series is all about, it's dealing with our identity. It's dealing with our, what it means to be human, what it means to relate to God, what it really means to relate to one another, to relate to ourselves, to relate to the broader community of humanity among us right? Uh, And one of the questions that we're asking ourselves, one of the questions that we ask as human beings that actually distinguishes us from all other beings is we ask, what does it mean to be human? Right? Like a platypus doesn't wake up and go, what does it mean to be a platypus? They just know. But we have this nagging, gnawing question that doesn't leave us alone as human beings. And it's, what is the meaning of me? What am I here for? Why? What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to be human? Driving home a couple weeks ago after uh, meeting with Deb and Christian for a discipling time, we're, we're getting gas. It's late at night. We're on William Canyon and uh, Brody. It's late at night. We're getting gas. And uh, there, I'm, I'm, I just get out. I'm starting to pump the gas. And I look across the, the parking lot, and there's some people fighting. They're arguing. Um, it's a couple of people, uh, two women, they're kind of, you know, they're having a verbal altercation, right? So I'm kind of keeping an eye on it from the peripheral, I'm pumping the gas, and then they start to go to blows. And now they're boxing each other, right? And I kind of lean into the window to Rachel and say, hey, call 911, tell them what you're seeing, we need to, like, let people know. So they're going to town, uh, it, you know, it all happens in a couple of seconds. They're hitting each other pretty significantly. And then out of the car that they're parked next to, a guy gets out of the car. And at first, I thought he was going in there to break it up for a second, right? But instead, he goes in there and he decks one of the women. Now she's really, you know, knocked off of her, her center, her balance, and, and, um, and then they, they, they scrap a little bit more, and then the guy and the girl get into the car and speed away, right? This is all seconds. So I'm heading over to, um, to this woman. <laughs> I thought I'd tell the story again. I wouldn't get all emotional, but I'm also very tired, so that doesn't help. Um, I, I'm coming over to this woman, and I'm, I'm looking at it, and it's clear, like, She's got blood all over her face, and I'm going, okay, this is, you know, what are we, what's happening? She's kind of stumbling back and falls onto the ground. And as I get closer, I realize, wow, she's got stab wounds. She's, she's bleeding out of her chest, out of her neck. And so, okay, so uh, we're putting, we're, we're putting pressure on the wounds, and we're trying to, like, stop the bleeding. And the, the clerk comes out, and we're all kind of working together. And she's, unfortunately, she's under the influence, and so she's like, she is, she's having this manic episode at the same time, right? She's confused, she's angry, she's screaming. Why? Why is this happening, right? And there's some people there that are, that are just parked in their cars and just filming and just kind of watching, and it's all happening, right? <laughs> Paramedics come. It takes like eight people to get her in the gurney, and to get her to help, right? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this moment, and, and I'm thinking about our humanity. And there is, there is something to be said about we have come a long way. Pro tip that you can't cry and drink water at the same time. So if you're ever stuck in a situation, 
Just have a big thing of water next to you. We've come a long way in our humanity. And you could argue, I think, you know, through the lens of the myth of progress, right, that we are wealthier and healthier than ever before as a humanity. Technologically, we have advanced. We're doing incredible things, right, more so than ever before. And, and that's true. The reality is, is that you and I are wealthier and healthier today than almost everybody who's lived before us, including some of the wealthiest people in the world that lived before us. Dale Carnegie, I looked up kind of his life. He, he'd be worth about four point, I don't know, eight billion dollars in today's money. And yet you, because you have penicillin, because you have, you know, infinity of information in your pocket that you carry around all the time, because you have the ability to get on an airplane and travel, because you have air conditioning, because, are you with me right there? Because you have Google, right? Like, you are wealthier than the wealthiest people in our history. So these things are true. Like, you know, we can, we can look to this thing and go, man, like, our humanity's doing pretty good, actually. Like, it's all, it's all going in the right direction, and yet, I think when we look at the Western world particularly, and when we look, when we look at a city like Austin, we see the wealth, we see the advancement, we see a city that's really like most major cities in the U.S. at this point, and, and we're, we're, we're living in this kind of space of technique and efficiency, and it's, it's beautiful, and it's fast, and it's seductive, and it's com complex, and it's all these things, but, but there are things that persist no matter how advanced we go. Addiction and violence, depression and anxiety, broken relationships, scandals, racism, abuse. As far as we've come, as advanced as we are, I think we have to hold the tension, especially as the Christians, as the body of believers, those who hold out hope for the world. We have to hold the tension that, man, there is a problem in our human condition that has not been fixed. That we cannot fix, with all of our best enlightenment thinkers, we cannot fix these problems. I think many of us, we could imagine someday maybe cancer will be eradicated. We may have the ability to cure all cancers someday. Can you imagine that someday people will stop violently fighting one another. It's harder to imagine, isn't it? It's harder to imagine. Because there's a human condition. Genesis chapter 1. You guys doing okay? All right, I think the crying's done. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is, this is the story that God invites us into. This is an ancient story. It's one of the oldest stories. Uh, and so it's a worldview, it's a, it's a narrative for us to think about and to believe and to live into. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful 
and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit in it with seeds in it. They will be yours for food. A little nod to the vegetarians. It was in the plan originally. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I will give you every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw all that he made. And it was very good. This is the first time humanity creation, sorry, this is the first time creation has been called very good. It's when God creates humanity. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The biblical anthropology of what it means to be human is strikingly different than the story that we live in today. It's strikingly different than what we may have come to understand things to be, even in our religious framework. When we ask, what does it mean to be human? The Bible responds with a poetic Hebrew story. And it's important that it's a story, that it's not a list of characteristics or qualities of what it means to be human. It's not a science book, it's, it's a story. Because we're narrative creatures. We all live under stories. It's how we understand life. It's how we make meaning of things. And so you and I are in a story. You have a story that you live under. I have a story that I live under. We all live in these stories. And in each of our stories, there is something that you call the good life. Have you heard that before? It's the good life is kind of, it's an amalgamation of a bunch of different stories that your story is made up of. And somewhere in your subconscious, somewhere in the future, there is this version of you that is the good life. And I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't, everybody's got a little bit different, but it's this version of you that is the good life someday. You're aiming yourself there. You're moving towards it. Does that make sense? What does it mean to be good, to be worthy, to be loved, to be successful, to be content, to be meaningful in your humanity? We all have stories to help us understand this because our, our identity is born of the stories that we live in. We imagine ourselves in this way. We take shape as human beings based on these stories. If your life, or if the story of your life, is that you need to discover your career path, right? So young people, you need to discover your career path and make enough money to buy the things that will make you happy, to help you have the experiences and the friends that will make you happy and content, then that will shape how you spend your time and your energy and your values. Does that make sense? You will start to practice and rhythms of habits aiming yourself towards that good life. If the story you live under is just, hey, I, I, the good life is unbridled pleasure, no restrictions on me, don't tread on me, whatever that means for you, right? Like, just leave me alone, I've got mine, you do you, I'll live my truth. Let me just have my story. If this is your version of the good life, then all the indicators of success will move your body. You will move your body towards all those indicators of success, of more freedom, of more autonomy, of more ultimately isolation. I think you would probably see that in many of us today. If your story is to live under this reality that ultimately you are alone, that people will come and go, that nothing is reliable, that the highest level of humanity that you can have is to kind of be a Jason Bourne spiritually, right? Like where you just are self-sufficient, you're autonomous, you have it all, you can do it all. You can, you know, cook a great meal and you can 
I don't know, stitch up somebody on, on the spot, like our friend over here, Cameron, who just stapled somebody's head a couple Sundays ago. Like, you can do it all, right? And some of us can do more than others, right? But there's this idea out there that, hey, the good life is you just, you got to be independent. You got to be autonomous. You got to be self-sufficient. You have to own it all. You can do it. And yet the CEO and the cashier have the same human problems. Their sin is the same. Their broken relationships are the same. The, dis- the dis- cyclical dysfunctions that they go through are the same. And so Genesis comes and tells a very different story. We learn two things from this story. First, God exists in this authoritative community of love as the author and creator of all things. And, and he is, his, author is recognized, his authority is recognized as good and benevolent and, and generous and full of trust and care and worthy and, 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 and able to hold us and to watch over us and to protect us and to give us what we need. And then humanity is given this identity of God to reflect back to all of creation. We call it the Imago Dei. Can you say that? The Imago Dei. It's the image of God, but this identity isn't found in Adam individually. And it's not found in Eve individually. What does the story say? Let us make them in our image. In our 21st century Christian world, we've come to believe that the story of God in our even own faith is to be an image bearer of God individually that I have my relationship with Jesus. Are you with me right there? Personal Jesus. And yet, actually, you cannot bear the image of God individually. I hate to burst your bubble. The image of God, God is a community. Many of the authors of the Old Testament were not monotheists. They saw God as a community. And they saw Yahweh as the chief of that community. And so this them who creates, or this us who creates them, is a community of love and goodness that creates a humanity that's meant to reflect that community of love and goodness. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? This community is given something, this humanity is given something to define them, a flourishing. They'll reflect the image of God. They will fill the human, you know, project that God is up to. They'll fill the earth. It's my favorite command. It's the command I tell all married people. It's the first thing that they have to obey in the Bible, right? To be fruitful, right? They're given this command. They're given this command to go rule, which is kind of this idea of like to go tend to the earth, to tend to all of creation. Belonging, growing, co-ruling with God. This is what it means to be human. Belonging, growing, and co-ruling with God. My four-year-old son came up to me the other day, uh, and I was working in my office, and he showed me this toy helicopter he made. And he said, Dad, when I get older, I want to be a helicopter flyer. And I said, you mean a pilot? He said, yes, a pilot or a pirate. (laughs) Because then I can go kill some monsters, right? And I'm like, all right, that's a good plan, right? When you're a kid, it's fun to think about who will I be? Who will I be someday? What do I want to make of myself, right? And we imagine that. And 
But that process, I think, for many of us who've gotten past the age of four, right, that process of trying to discover our own humanity, discover what it means to live a meaningful life, to be good, to have contentment, to have the kind of humanity we were created, it's a burden I think many of us feel crushing. We're actually not meant to carry it. Identity isn't something, in the biblical story, identity isn't something that you come up with. It's not something that you write. It's something that you're given. It's not this flexible, shifting, fluid thing that you get to determine based on trends or whatever's happening in your generation. It's something you're endowed with, your humanity. And the identity doesn't come from the self-authoring that happens inside of you. The identity comes from an author who's outside of you, an authority who is good and gracious, a community of love who says you are created to belong, to grow, and to flourish, to co-rule. I have this saying with my boys. Uh, I'll ask one of them, I'll say, hey, what does the world need? And they respond to me, they say, the world needs good men. And I say, and you're going to be a good man. Why do I do that? Because my job as their father is to endow them with the story. Does that make sense? To give them their identity in that story. That they don't have to bear the burden of trying to figure it out. All this changed in Genesis 3 though, right? It's talking snake shows up, things start to go awry pretty quickly. And humanity goes from belonging to a creator, a community, and reflecting that community, that imago Dei in a community. They go from that to an autonomous humanity. Autonomous from the authority of God, it's bound to, deter to determine for themselves who they will become. Based on their will, on their decision of what's right and wrong, and they want to now know how to rule. And very quickly, they become aware of their own vulnerabilities in this, right? If you know the story, they, they find themselves naked for the first time. And they try to cover it up, and they try to hide who they are because they're, they're feeling suddenly the vulnerability of the reality of this autonomy. Like, gosh, I, I don't know. If, I didn't know I was going to have to handle all this. And they try to cover it up and hide it with their own making. And I think many of us do this as well. We live under the story that our humanity, our identity is ours, our autonomy, our self-defining, self-sufficient, self-authoring life is ours. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, that level of vulnerability and responsibility, it leads us to cover up a lot, doesn't it? We hide. We make our own things to try to cover it up. Maybe it's an education, maybe it's a degree, maybe it's a job or a position or a certain amount in the bank account or a place that you live or whatever it is or a spouse or a romantic pursuit or experiences on your social media, but we try to cover it up because the vulnerability of belonging to ourselves is actually a little too much. So we go for a little more exercise, a little better work-life balance, a better diet, cooler friends, whatever it is, right? More toys, more money. But we're actually becoming more and more isolated as humanity. If you look at the studies, as we have advanced technologically, as our lives in the human condition has gotten healthier and safer, 
Do you know what's gone up as well? Anxiety, depression, born of the crippling isolation of belonging to yourself. And that nagging question of what does it mean to be human? It keeps messing up our progress, doesn't it? Like we keep trying and it keeps messing up our progress. And where do we turn to for our identity when we feel that burden of trying to figure it out on our own? Where is a good place to go, you know what? I need some identity. I need somebody to tell me who I am to tell me what's right and wrong, to tell me how to operate in humanity. I need someone to really help me figure out how to navigate, how to deal with people I feel are enemies. And where do we turn? To politics, don't we? We go, tell me, tell me who my enemies are. Tell me how to deal with them. Tell me what my place is. Oh, you've got a worship center, a worship experience. You've got preachers and dogma and doctrine that I can adopt that will give me an identity. And then politics shift. We've seen that, right? Even just the last couple of years, people who were once a fan of somebody suddenly go, well, actually, we're not that much of a fan anymore, are we? Or we turn to something else. Maybe it's our careers, fashion, religion. We can turn to this. And we go, you, this, this, tell me what it all is. Tell me where I belong. Tell me what to do here. And we miss the meaning of what God has been up to. And so Jesus comes, Mark chapter 1, and we'll get ready to take communion here. Mark chapter 1, Jesus comes in and he's come to, to fix the problem, to offer a solution. And the solution that he comes to offer, it's not a program. It's not a five ways to strategically fix your life. This is what he has to say. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. My favorite definition of repentance comes from a guy named Joel Green, and he calls it a conversion of the imagination. And so Jesus comes and he tells us, hey, you've been imagining your life under this story. This story where politics reigns, because that was true in his day. This story where you're up against others in competition to get ahead, because that was true in his day. This story where you are on your own, because that was true in his day. This story where you are, you are at the bottom of systemic oppression, and that was true in his day. You've been living under this story. He says, I want to convert your imagination into a whole different story to give you something else to think about to believe, one where you belong to a community of God. You don't belong to yourself. One where you are called to live into a humanity that reflects that community of God, inescapably belonging to others. A story where you, you don't get to determine your identity. You are given your identity by a good, gracious, trustworthy authority in your life. And he comes to model for us this way of the garden, this way of abundance, this way of loving others, so much so that you would even love your enemies. A lot of us have a hard time just loving our enemies of thought, let alone the people who would actually do violence to us. 
And he comes and he says, I will reshape. If you can reimagine the story you're in, if you can just let me give you a different picture of the good life, I will reshape you into such a person of love that you will be able to love your enemies and bless them and walk with them an extra mile and give up more for them. As me and that store clerk and the paramedics were tending to this woman who's suffering under a story that she's come to live, under a story that other people come to live, um, we told a very different story there among us. No gospel, no Bible was opened up, but grace was performed. Are you with me right there? No arguments about rationale or, or righteousness were discussed between me and the store clerk. We didn't determine if we're on the same page with these certain theological statements, but I can tell you right now, wounds were healed. No distinction of who's in and who's out was made. Who's right, who's wrong. But the hospitality of God was displayed. Where strangers took in a stranger. The Imago Dei. Jesus invites us back into the identity we were endowed with at the beginning of all things, belonging, flourishing, partnering with God into this sacred overlap where our story becomes his story as we reimagine the story. Are you with me? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, as we land in communion. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will, and you will find rest for your soul, for your nefesh. Your nefesh is, is, the, is not even just your, it's not your like inner being, it's all of you. It's your body, it's your Spirit, it's your identity. You will find rest for you if you would learn from me, he says. That burden you're carrying that has made you weary, that has made you tired, the trying to be who you think you should be based on the story you've been told, the self-authoring, the figuring it out autonomously, he says it has worn you out and you will find rest if you'll learn from me. If you'll reimagine that there is good news and a good king and a good story and a good community of God that can reign over your life. And so if you're visiting with us and you go, well, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know where I would start with that. I would just say, hey, look, we, we, we are, we're a community who's trying to make that happen here. And we are failing miserably often, but we keep at it. And we love each other along the way. And we forgive each other along the way. But we do these things, we call it discipleship. And we walk with each other, we teach each other, we remind each other, we encourage each other, we admonish each other, we spur one another on through this story. This is the real story. The other stories that we come in contact with throughout, this is the real story. And we work that out in, in community. We work it out in small groups. We're about to go into a whole season of going into smaller groups amongst the community to just work these things out, to remind each other of the right story, to remind each other of the identity that we actually have been given. 
And so if you're going, I, I just, I want to be a part of that. I want to figure that out. Please come talk to us. Come join us. Come be with us. Come try a small group. Come get involved. I think you'll see a community that's trying and that if you're looking, you will see God. You will see the Imago Dei. You will see the community that belongs to one another. Ultimately, the story of the cross tells us that Jesus was willing so much for this to be our reality, to invite us back into the story, so much so that he would pay the cost of that redemption. That he would pay the cost to bring us back into the Imago Dei. That he would pay the cost to bring us back into this kingdom where we reign and rule with God, where we flourish in abundance. As we take communion, let's remember the words of Paul, the words of the early Christians who would say, you were bought at a price. And live up to the calling you have received. And let me just alleviate any anxiety that has nothing to do with performance. That has everything to do with, are you living in the story? Are you living into the calling of the story you've been given? The good life that you've been pointed towards? Is that the story? Are you living into that? Because it came at a price. Let's take communion together. Well, thank you for being here.